over all of it. Not a single atom is out of place. I mean, I can't even keep track of matching my socks after doing laundry. But God is no effort to keep the universe together. And I just praise him for that, that the sun comes up every morning. And I, I don't worry about tomorrow because God's in control. I'd like to welcome you to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. And we have a few announcements. On the back table, there's a visual for the kids that are going to stay in the service. This will help you with what Pastor's talking about with the tabernacle. There's also a, a simpler sketch on the back of the worship folder. So make yourselves available of that. And for announcements today, we have youth choir practice after the service. Um, so thank you for running that, ladies. And next week we have a business meeting. There is a budget on the back with some financial statements. It's the same thing that was there last week in case you didn't get a copy of it. And we will have soup and sandwiches beforehand. And keep Catherine in prayer because she's sending off her little boy. Um, I'm sure he's excited to go, but she has started the grieving process already, I'm sure. Is that right? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Pray for Wayne that as he counsels her. Comfort the grieving. Yeah. <laughs> Comfort the grieving. Yeah. Um, that's all the announcements. So we're going to go into our scripture reading. And would you please turn? It's a long passage. So the four guys up here are going to read. But we're in John chapter seven. That's right after John chapter six. For those of you who need help. Okay, this, this is God's word, seriously, this is God's word, and I am so thankful that he has preserved his Bible for us. John chapter 7, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And we don't have uh, emotion in scripture, but you know they were not being real nice to him when they said that. It was probably in a sarcastic tone. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Let's continue in verse 14. 
About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will do, <clears throat> if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Amen. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who, will, <clears throat> who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because, of the <clears throat> because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man who they seek to kill and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears no one will know where he comes from so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple you know me and you know where I come from but I have not come of my own accord he who sent me is true and him you do not know I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. And some said, is, is the Christ come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and, from, and comes from Bethlehem, where the village where David was? And so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, 
Why did you not bring him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let us pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to hear about Christ from your word. A true report about a true and living God incarnate in the person of Christ. And we we recognize that many, most, really didn't hear him. I pray that we would hear him even this day. May we hear these words ring true in our heart that if if we indeed thirst, that we can come to him to drink. That we can believe in Christ and live and have out of our hearts rivers of flowing water, living water as it were. We're thankful for the goodness that you are to all of mankind, but specifically to those that you have gathered together and called your beloved. I pray, Father, that our recognition of that would would cause us to have great faith and trust in you, regardless of whatever circumstances follows. I pray, Father, that also that many would come to recognize that no one really has ever spoken like Christ. And so may we hear Christ. Hear not just hearing words that are being said, but hear to truly know and follow Christ. We're thankful that you indeed will forgive us of our sin, cleanse us, and then call us to your service. I pray, Father, that that truth would ring loudly in our own hearts. May our devotion to Christ increase. As we sing, may we sing great praises to you and may you receive this as worship of who you are and all that you do. I pray, Father, that we would encourage one another as we see the day approaching and look forward to indeed that blessed hope in which we can Stand in the fullness of your presence in great glory and great pleasure. Be pleased with our worship today, we pray. May we hear from Christ, and may it be a treasure of our heart. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take our hymn books and stand this morning and turn to number two as we sing praises to the Lord. The King of Heaven, number two, praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, evermore 
his praises sing. Number two. My Savior leads me. This God, our God, forever and ever, he will lead us eternally. Psalm 48, 14, 474.
turn over to number 530. 530, I'd rather have Jesus. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3.8. Good morning. The scripture reading in Acts chapter 19 uh, would be, uh, you could find it 
on page 928 of your Pew Bibles. Yes, uh, not much has changed in the last couple thousand years. In this passage, we see greed and idolatry. We see a catchy chant that leads a mob to riot. And we see cancel culture and all of that. It's a, a good commentary on this is pa- Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, in this famous resurrection chapter, it seems to be uh, his, some of his time in Ephesus uh, seems to be on his mind. I'll look over that for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 15.30, why are we in danger every hour? Uh, being around riots and a dangerous ministry, it wouldn't be worth it unless Christ is the risen Lord. Uh, for a while I did ministry uh, in some of the Taliban villages up in the Pakistan mountains. And that would have been a very dumb idea, except that Jesus is our Lord. In uh, verse 32, what do I gain if humanly, uh, if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? That wasn't Paul fighting lions in the Colosseum. That was de- uh, dealing with this kind of a riot. If uh, the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we died. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And we see that here with this riot as well. A wise man once said that uh, bad company, if a company corrupts the good and uh, makes the good corrupt and the bad even worse. Uh, Let's go to the text. Uh, Hear the word of the living and true God. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 19. A riot at Ephesus. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and uh, Archaea and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them uh, Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Macedonians, uh, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And uh, even some of the uh, Asiarchs, uh, who were friends of his, uh, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, uh, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, uh, motioning with his hand, uh, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. 
But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, uh, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word and uh, for our local church body. Uh, give us the uh, wisdom to see clearly the idols of our day and give us the uh, spirit-prompted boldness to proclaim the emptiness uh, of those idols and uh, help us to rather have Jesus than the things of this world. And give us the ability and uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that we you would save uh, the, the children in our congregation and that we would uh, have uh, the uh, sacrificial Christ-like boldness to uh, teach a generation to uh, not love their lives uh, even unto death, uh, following the Lamb where, wherever we go. And even as uh, we give, uh, we remember that uh, the, the giving uh, that we do is worth it for Christ is our risen Lord. Uh, we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.
it's time to learn another psalm, and so we've got an insert, I think it's Psalm 30. If you want to take your Bibles out, we're going to uh, look at this psalm a little bit, and uh, this psalm that churches use uh, around communion time, also it's a psalm of Thanksgiving, so it's a time to learn this psalm and kind of look over it maybe once or twice before Thanksgiving, and then as a family, uh, bring it out to sing maybe on Thanksgiving, but um, as I mentioned, this is a psalm to sing. Uh, Kevin Swanson said that it's, it's a, song, a psalm to sing after we have been delivered from our trials and have a new renewal of communion with God. Many churches use this psalm to sing after they've uh, enjoyed communion at the Lord's table, but as I mentioned, Kevin Swanson said that this psalm teaches us that as we look back and see God's hand on us, and as we walk through the mountains and the valleys of life, we need to give thanks. The Christian life is filled with changes, moving from tragedy to triumph, from humiliation to exaltation. God uses each bend in the pathway of life to teach us to trust in him, that we may fix our eyes upon him instead of on our own trials and triumphs. As we look over the paths we have traversed, we recall that the dark valleys, valleys were comparatively short segments in the journey. Yes, there were periods of weeping, but the weeping is nothing compared to the joy of God's salvation, his presence, and his healing hand on our lives. For the man of, and women of faith, memories will elicit joy and make us feel like dancing. Life has its ups and downs. The differences between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian will not interpret his life apart from his relationship with God. We must keep our hearts humble and our eyes fixed on God. If, the, if that be the case with us, then trials will never sink us into the gall of bitterness. Rather, they will soften our hearts and bring us back to God as the only source of our comfort and deliverance. So that's Psalm 30 in a nutshell. If you look at it, follow along. I'll read through those 12 verses of Psalm 30, and then we'll have the girls play through it for us. This is going to be a new tune for us. But Psalm 30, a psalm of David, a psalm, song of the dedication of the temple. Verse 1, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. Extol means to praise enthusiastically. Uh, the Legacy Standard Version says that verse uh, a little differently. It says, I will exalt you, O Yahweh, for you have lifted me up. Uh, so verse 1 again, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. I have not let my foes, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You restored me to life from among those who, have, who go, down, go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By, you, by your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. 
O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So if the ladies will play through the, the, the psalm for us, and then we'll sing it through. We'll remain seated and just kind of focus on the words of Psalm 30 and work on this. We'll probably sing this two or three times before Thanksgiving, but Psalm 30, let's, let's hear it. psalms hymns spiritual songs it is a privilege to be able to sing the psalms and thanks for teaching us another one as we 
work through that as well. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And you've kind of noticed the theme thus far that we're <coughs> at this section in the book of Hebrews. I'm taking a little time to discuss and explain the, the portrait or picture of Christ as he's pictured in this structure called the tabernacle. And um, I'll continue for a few more weeks to discuss some of these elements. Today's focus will be on how this tabernacle, tent, if you will, pictures the access to God through Jesus Christ, kind of like a, a bit of an overview here. I think it's essential for us to know and recognize that God has created man in his own image, both male and female. Genesis records a historical account of that, and that's how we know that. God created both male and female in distinct ways that communicate various aspects or attributes of God. And we know the rest of the story, the fall in chapter 3, and yet, though that image is masked to some degree because of our sin, you can still see the radiance of his beauty, that is God's beauty, in the way mankind functions. It might be a little blurry, but you can see the beauty in actions, attitudes, and affections expressed to one another. These are reflections, imperfectly of course, but of God's very image, his glory, as we might say. That's why we are called, as our meditation verse this week, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever it is, do all to the glory of God. That's what man was created to do and to enjoy him forever. In chapter 2 of Genesis, God gives some details about this creation, a unique creation, mankind in his image, radiating the beauty of who he is. And he would say in chapter 2, and I'm sure you're familiar, 2.18 specifically, he says this interesting phrase, after everything's created that's good, of course, God creates all that is good. He says there's something that's not good, and that would be for man to be alone. And in the text, it specifically talks about how he's not going to be alone because there he creates a woman. And then they're united together, married, and become, as it were, one. One flesh, this union. It is not just specifically between man and woman, but it's really emblematic of our relationship with God. God has created mankind to be in fellowship ultimately with him. To have communion with him. And you can find that in chapter 3, even in the time of the fall. It states here in chapter 3 in Genesis that God is, is then walking through the garden to be with this creation, these 
creatures that he made. And because of sin, man and woman hide themselves from God, at least from their perspective. No longer do they desire to be in the full presence of God, which, by the way, is the fullness of joy. It is what we have been created for. It is fully expressed in his presence. But sin has broken that unique fellowship with God ultimately and with one another. Sin breaks our fellowship in all of our relationships. It's described here that there is now enmity, if you will, some sort of dividing factor between God and man. It ultimately is due to our rebellion, our sin. But God is a good and gracious God. The devil authors sin, brought forth this enmity between God and man by creating a union with sin and the sinner. In Genesis 3.15, then in the curse, God will prophetically pronounce that he's going to resolve that enmity and create a new one. <laughs> in 3.15, he says, I will, as God's saying that, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, they join forces, and God's going to break that bond of sin between your offspring and her offspring. And here prophetically say, states, that offspring will bruise your head, that is, crush you, kill you, and you shall bruise his heel. God promises to redeem his children by breaking the bonds of sin. He'll do so by fatally crushing the evil one through the seed of the woman. That act will cause injury to that seed. And as we learn from Scripture, the seed of the woman, a unique way to express a human being in birth because he's born of God, a virgin birth, a God-man who will vicariously take on that sin, pay the wages, appeasing God's righteousness and restoring fellowship between God and man like it was in the beginning. And call that man the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Christ. And through his action, this redemption will result in bringing a people for his name to be restored to sin no more, brought into perfect harmony with God and therefore restoring that fellowship which we were designed to have and desire to have in great perfection. And it will overflow in our unique fellowship with one another as well. All of this is portrayed, by the way, in symbolic form in this tabernacle, and that's why we're bringing this up. It's in Hebrews chapter 9. 
Remember, Hebrews 8 closes with the idea that all of this is going away, and yet the symbolism still stands in our text to remind us of the reality. The rituals will no longer be performed because the reality is there. The, the shadow is gone. The substance has arrived. It is symbolic, however, of the present age, verse 9 of chapter 9. And so let's once again look at the symbolic nature of this tabernacle. And I'll read the text beginning in verse 1 and we'll go through verse 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. And, and by the way, note the word the past tense had its own purpose. That, that it's, that's what it was. It, it's vanished away. Christ has come. But it did have these regulations. It did have these rituals that were from God. They were rituals for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. That's the tabernacle. And then he goes on to describe it. The first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, there was a section called the most holy place, having the golden altar, incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Now, all of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I'm going to give you a little bit of detail, because they knew it very well, including something, uh, if I get time, I'll bring up about this incense in verse 4. But nevertheless, he's not getting it into detail, because his audience knows it perfectly well. When he states this, they see the image of what they have. And by the way, to help out, I've put some of those image papers, you can get them back there, particularly for the young ones, to, to be able to, to look at it and kind of see a diagram of, of it, both on the back of your worship folder and then a little picture in the back, as Andy had announced. But back to our text. We can't speak of these in detail, he says, but, but he does say something about it. He says, these preparations and having been made... And, and here gets into the practice, then, of how these things function. The priests then go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is stand, still standing. By the way, it's not still standing, so we'll get to that too. And he said, and in parentheses here, to describe, it is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of reformation. That time is now. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that you give us insight into your word. May we see the glory of Christ is pictured in the tabernacle. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you look at your little diagram on the back of your worship folder that I gave you, it might help somewhat. 
<coughs> in describing what's going on. This tent that's mentioned here is essentially in uh, uh, it, it is essentially initially a fence, if you will. And we talked about that. It, it's a portable tent with a structure outside this fence and a tent what we might think of as a tent, inside with two compartments. This tent was used as a place of worship, a reminder that God was with them during their wilderness journey. And I've said before, remember, they, they came from the bondage of Egypt, and they were going to the promised land. In the between, you have the wilderness journey, sojourning as Strangers and pilgrims in a foreign land. And I think you get the idea what that pictures. This pictures the deliverance from sin. But yet, struggling through it in the journey to get to the full realization of it in the promised land. And that's why he talks about the tabernacle as opposed to the temple. The temple's a permanent structure that was actually in the land. It does picture Christ, but in a different way. This is picturing Christ during our journey in this life. God is present with his people. Now, under this covenant, the old covenant, the people just pictured that. Right? They weren't necessarily regenerate as we might think. They're not the church. They're not the body of Christ. These are people who had agreement and a covenant to put on display these aspects of God and specifically of Jesus Christ, in a picture book format, if you will. God is with them as sojourners and pilgrims in that foreign land. Their, their citizenship really belongs in the promised land, in heaven. And God will be with them the entire time to the very end of the age, as Jesus would say. All of these elements point ultimately to Christ. Now, if you have your, just to help out some directions, and I'm going to see and try to get through this. Often we have to cut and paste these messages because they get a little carried away. But I'll see if I can get through all three points. If not, there is always next week. But... Let me just help you by way of direction, I just thought, particularly for young ones. Now, in our text, it's going to talk about two entrances, right? But it's talking about that tent with inside of that perimeter being one and two. The way I've described it, just for our discussion, is if you look in the perimeter, and I have it on this diagram, you can put number one by that gate. Because you've got to get into the structure to begin with. We talked about that last week. And then the way I'm going to talk about it, look, number two, there's no door written on the holy place. That's the next section, but that would be the second entrance there. And there is a veil, and we'll talk about that. But then there's one more veil, and that's right before the holy place. So all three of these, you would go through the main gate, right? And you would then get to the holy place, and then the most holy place, all of them going from east to west. All right. So that might help provide some structure here in a minute if I get out of sorts. So 
Let me give you a brief description, and I'm just going to read one because I have trouble being brief. So I'll read Barry Cooper's description of this structure in general as a summary. And you can listen and look on your chart here that I provided for you. He writes, the, the tabernacle was effectively a large and elaborate tent, 45 by 15 feet wide, 45 feet long and 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. The frame of it was made of wood overlaid with gold. It had no solid roof or front wall, but instead was covered at those points by four layers of cloth and animal skin. Inside it, this is the tent proper, there were two rooms. The larger room, 30 feet by 15 feet by 15, was known as the holy place. And that's really important. That's, that's going through that door number two. That's the holy place. It contained an altar on which incense was burned. A golden lampstand, a wooden table overlaid with gold for bread of the presence. Twelve loaves intended to remind the twelve tribes of Israel of God's covenant with them and his provision for them. This was, after all, the God who had sustained them with bread from heaven as they made their way through the wilderness. You're getting the picture, I think, if you listen carefully and if you know the rest of the story. Further, Inside the tabernacle, separated off by an elaborate heavy curtain, there was a smaller of two rooms, a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15. And it was called the most holy place. That's door number three would be the veil. This room contained the Ark of the Covenant, a wooden chest overlaid with gold, containing the stone tablets on which God had written his law. The appearance of the ark was like a throne, or more specifically, like the footstool of a throne. The tabernacle then was the earthly meeting place where God stooped to meet with his people. As the Lord says in the book of Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. I do want to take a closer look at both that, those two rooms, if you will, once you get inside of the structure, the holy place and the most holy place. But I want to give more of a bird's eye view today, kind of back up a little bit to get a bigger picture of what's going on here. I've already mentioned that the fellowship between God and man has been broken by sin. To restore that fellowship or communion with God, that enmity, that division between God and man needs to be resolved. God will resolve, as we've mentioned. He'll do so by creating enmity between man and the devil, (laughs) between the evil one and rebellion. This tabernacle pictures then God in fellowship with his people. It pictures restoration. And each and every element here provides a significant picture of that. Three sections, as I've described and identified, 
this outer court, like a fence, that holds everything together there, the courtyard. And then there's a, there's a, inner, there's a tent inside of that called the holy place. And then inside of that tent, if you will, is another one called the most holy place. These rituals that are performed, each one in each different section, progresses, if you will, to a greater degree of closeness to God and intimacy and fellowship with him till you get into the final place, which is the most holy place. This is what makes it holy is God each section communicates that there there are specific entry points to each one by the way you just can't stumble over it you go through it and each one each entry point into the intimate fellowship with God as that level increases general in the in the open-air, fenced area, to the, the more significant place, the holy place, and then the most holy place, can I tell you this? They're only through Christ and Christ alone. This is contrasted to modern secular ideology, perhaps best espoused and communicated by Ofer Winfrey, who says, it doesn't matter what you call him, It does indeed matter because of who he is and who he has disclosed himself to be. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and Jesus Christ, our Lord, alone. There is no other way. There is no other way to enter into fellowship, into communion with God. There is no salvation in anyone else the apostle would say there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved it is jesus christ the lord and him alone because there is only one god and only one mediator between god and man the man christ jesus The the, the one who stands on both sides of that equation, it is only him who could reconcile. One mediator. Christ alone. If you don't get anything else, look to him and look to him alone. As I've noted for you on your outline here, The way I've numbered it, really, when you think about it, there's three entrances into this tabernacle. (coughs) Each of them picture various aspects of Jesus Christ. And I just want to give you a general aspect. Remember, I'm I'm not getting down to the detailed brushstrokes. I'm trying to just paint a portrait of Christ. And I think that's where we can be safe to do that because the other scriptures talk about these various aspects. There are a number of theologians who would would agree that a very significant statement that most of us know, and I put on the top of the back side of your bulletin, is John 14, 6, where Jesus exclaims this, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now think about that and superimpose that on the image here of this tabernacle. He's the first door. He's the second door. And he's the third door. There are no other doors but him. And each one represents various aspects of how we have access to God through one, and that is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. All three speak of Jesus Christ, who is that one. Paul, I appreciate you reading Acts for us, and if you notice when he did, there was a phrase in 1909 where some people were upset about this gospel that was being proclaimed and they said in speaking evil of the what did you catch it the way 1909 in acts in our reading in speaking evil of the way what what is what is the way they're talking about and i won't go into great detail because of time but Historically, initially, that's what God's people were called. We call them Christians. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Christians just simply means little Christ or followers of Christ. Initially on, it was like uh, they called them the way. It, it was the Apostle Paul when he was persecuting the church in Acts chapter 9. He said, I want to know about the, the way. Those who belong to the, the way. Who is the way? The way is the way to access to God. It is Jesus Christ. And that's what those early Christians claim. That Jesus is the way. The only way. He is that one. This first entrance here that's mentioned that we talked about is a way to fellowship with God. That's what we're talking about a way to have communion with God. There's only one. It's Christ. This tabernacle is, is bounded by a fence. You just can't get in any other way. It, re, it represents the distinctiveness of who God is. He, he is holy. And you can come through that entrance. And I mentioned before in our sermon on this that that door was very large. It could accommodate, and that's the message we give, and that's the message I give right now to everyone. It doesn't matter what religious system you, you, you're in or come from or what ideas and ideologies. Christ is the way, and you can come. That's the blessingness of it. The, the prophet Isaiah says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. It's just a different imagery of coming to Christ, and that's our, our, our call. Jesus would say it this way in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And many religious systems will put you in all kinds of labor, in all kinds of work that you must do. And hopefully by the end, you might find the way. Well, you're not. The only way is the way of Christ. And he's done the work. And that's why his burden is light. Because you're not carrying the load. He is. He's already done it. Isn't that beautiful? 
Yeah, and Revelation ends, and I just love hearing it. Here, here it is, Revelation, how it ends. This prophetic message, this communication, Revelation means the revealing. What is it revealing? It is revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ, and how does it end? It says the Spirit and the bride say, come. Hopefully you see the glory of Christ, and you come. You come into God's presence, this wide gate of Christ that can accommodate all, a beautiful gate as it was described, purple, scarlet, and white threads, blue, embroidered together in a way that you couldn't miss against the background of pure white. You see it. It's there. It's Christ. And so this is the gospel that we preach. And as I mentioned before, we've been through this first entrance. We've gone into it. And in, when you get into it, there is an object there that you come against first, as we mentioned. It is the brazen altar. Come to Christ for forgiveness of sin. You've got to come to Christ and have your sins atoned for. That's what that altar is portraying. God is too holy to look upon sin. It, it must be atoned for, and Christ has done so. You can't regard iniquity in your own heart and expect to have communion with God. The sinner must be purged from that enmity and instead have something disrupted between them and Satan and restored with them and God. And the altar portrays that. Christ takes on the, the full cup of God's wrath and cries out on our behalf as a sinner, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He restores that fellowship because he's paid that penalty. And the second stop, as we mentioned last week, is that labor, water, instrument, portraying the idea of being cleansed, to have Fellowship with God, positionally, you need to be clean. And practically, you need to be clean, too. And we described that last week in greater detail. But that's what it's imaging going through. This looking back then at this altar and in Christ, this one sacrifice your sins are atoned for. You've been made clean, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And as you go through this sojourn this journey of life and you struggle with sin you simply confess it and you know he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness that's, that's hard to believe when you really think about it and when you really know your sin and when you really know yourself that God will completely make you clean and you fall down and worship and have communion with him that's what this is about it's about restoring fellowship with God. Our fellowship with God is in the person of Jesus Christ who atones for our sin and cleanses from all unrighteousness. Once you're in that courtyard, there's this other door standing in front of you. 
imagery. Again, don't push these images further than they're intended to communicate. They don't communicate every little aspect, okay? So you gotta look at it a bigger picture, but imagine you're in the courtyard, you had, <coughs> you had we've been through the altar, we've been through the labor, and now there's this tent, and the tent's got a door. What's that door about? More fellowship, an increasing level of fellowship, if you will. The door, I would say, represents truth. Jesus is not only the way, but he's also the truth. In John chapter 1, and, and some of the, I'm going to go through a lot of verses and <coughs> try to squeeze this in. So to the degree you want to turn, you can. There's some that I'll have you turn. And I will go back to uh, Hebrews 9. And so if you, if you stray from there, you might want to keep your finger there. But at least listen to this. In the, in the prologue to John, which is just a, John's just a beautiful gospel. Love reading it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What a beautiful passage to think and sit on the glory of Christ. And John continues, and he, he explains in verse 14. He calls Him the Word. He says, and this Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's how he explains Christ, full of grace and truth, comprehensively truth. He's grace and truth. He is all true. This word in John 1.14, when he says he dwelt among us, you know how you could translate it? Tabernacle. Tent. Yeah, he's reaching back to that very same picture. It, it, it is God incarnate dwelling with us, <coughs> pitching his tent with us, if you will. It, it, it says he's, he's grace and truth. Truth is that he is the embodiment of truth, and not only true in everything he would do, everything that he would say, but beyond that, the true pushes beyond that to, to incorporate the idea of real. Okay. The, the, the tent, the tabernacle that they erected in the wilderness wasn't true in the sense that it wasn't the real. It was just the ritual. Christ is the reality. He came and pitched his tent. He came and actually took on human flesh. And John says, well, we, we, we saw his glory. We, we, we saw the glory <coughs> hidden in, in flesh, incarnate deity, yes. It, it, they couldn't see the fullness of it. And one time they asked him, remember, Lord, show us your glory. We call it the, the Mount of Transfiguration because Christ gives them a glimpse of it. Described in Matthew 17. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Brilliant. Can you look at the sun? No, you'll go blind. What a great imagery. It, whatever the most glorious manifestation of light, that's what Christ would be. He said, we saw that glory. 
We saw that not only in that display of revealing to some degree to that select few who he was, but beyond that, you saw his glory in, in all that he said, in, in all that he did, in all that he, his affections, as they were explained. I, I'm always uh, enamored by reading through the Gospels <coughs> and hearing about his teaching, Matthew 4, He went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction of people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they they brought to him then all the sick afflicted with various diseases and pains who oppressed by demons and having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them all. He'll explain to us why. Because is it easier to say, get up to a paralytic man, or your sins are forgiven? Let me tell you, it's a lot harder to say your sins are forgiven. This stuff is easy. Just by the word of his power. To say your sins are forgiven, he had to pay for them. He had to die. And he had to really suffer. He was attested by mighty works. Sir John, the Baptist, an Old Testament prophet, the bridge between the old and the new, he points out that Jesus indeed is the truth incarnate. He said, this is of whom, I'm in John 1, 15, you want to note it for later. He who <coughs> comes after me, he came after in time, ranks before me because he was before me. He is from eternity. That is Christ speaking of his de- deity. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. not denigrating the law. The law just has no way to redeem. All the law can do is point out that you're, that you're not a saint, but rather a sinner, a lawbreaker. It has no way to reconcile, to, to restore man to God, to, to deal with that enmity, and then create an enmity, if you will, between the devil and yourself. Only Christ. Only Christ. I'll read this, John, in his first epistle. And we know from 520, 1 John, and we know that the Son of God has, has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, that is God, and in him who is true, that is Christ, in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. The second entrance into that holy place mentioned in Hebrews 9.2 is a place and a special room. You can read about it in, Deut- in Exodus chapter 26, 36-37. I'll just read <laughs> a brief description of it. <coughs> 
You'll make a screen for the entrance of the tent. That's the door <clears throat> to this holy place. Make it of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, embroidered with, embroidered with needlework. That's what it looked like. Beautiful. It covered the site of what was inside. And for you kids and adults who are kids like me and like to look at pictures, I got some pictures of it back there. It's got a cutaway of the inside. And those pictures don't do it justice, but it's on the second page if you want to flip that over. And imagine beautiful tapestry on the inside. It's described in the first part of Exodus 26. I'll read it for you. You should make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And he gives the length and the size and all these dimensions. <clears throat> but what you would see, if you, if you get through that beautiful door, inside opens up this majestic beauty of all of these colors. The outside would have been covered with skin, animal skins. So you couldn't see the beautiful tapestry until you go inside. Inside, you're going to find three objects in this holy place. A lamp, a table, and an altar. And we'll get into that in days to come, perhaps next week. But just the brief overview, lamp, you can see. There's no window in that, door, in that room. You wouldn't be able to see the beauty without the lamp. It's associated with the Holy Spirit, by the way. There's a table in there and a loaf for each tribe, each covenant member, provision for which he provides. And this incense, an altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the saints. Now, here, I would invite you to go back to verse 2 of, of Hebrews 9. Just to clear up something briefly, it, it talks about the temp, this place that I'm talking about, this room going through the second door, that it is a place where the first section where the lampstand and the table of bread of presence is called the holy place. And then it'll go on and associate the, the most holy place with the golden, uh, the altar of incense. Now, I'm going to give further detail on this, but I just want you to know one thing. He's not giving all of the details, as we've already said in verse 5. They understand what's going on. They know where that altar of incense is. That altar of incense, and you can look at it on your diagram, it's right before that, what I call the third door, the veil between the most holy place and the holy place. They know that. It's in front of there. However, the time in which he's talking about is the Day of Atonement. And on that day, guess where the incense is? The priest takes it with him into the most holy place. I just said that as a way for you to understand how that's going to work, <coughs> because you might have confused you when I said those three items are actually in the first room. It's that third item that... Uh, altar of incense 
the incense is taken off that altar and brought into the most holy place when he enters then, and I'll address that later. But all three of these artifacts, though, that are normally right here in the, in the holy place, all of them represent communion or fellowship with God through the truth, th- through those aspects, true fellowship with God through Christ. But that true fellowship with him now here presented in the holy place How do you get in the holy place? It wasn't for everybody. Only the priests could go in. All of them. But you had to be a priest. They had duties. They had to put oil in that lampstand. They had to change out the bread each week. They had to put the incense on that altar that was in there. Not everybody could go in. There's some restriction into that intimacy. You had to be a priest. Well, then how does that apply to you? And here I'll just, for sake of time, read a couple passages for you. Peter describes God's people this way by using that analogy. You you folks have studied 1 Peter, so hopefully this will bring up a reminder to you recently. 1 Peter 2, 9. You're a chosen race. And here's the word. A royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I think you see the connection with light, don't you? You were once not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those that are in Christ are in union with him and have become priests to God. And I'm not making this up. Listen to how John talks about it in Revelation to the churches in Asia. I'll read it for you. Revelation 1.4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Speaking of Christ, how do we have peace? Because that enmity is removed. Now we have fellowship with God. That's what he's talking about. And from the seven spirits before his throne, (coughs) and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on, on the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. And then what did he do? Okay, you get your sins forgiven. You're cleansed. The altar and the laborers are all there. And now what? You get to go into the, most, into the holy place. Because you've been made a kingdom, <coughs> a priest to God and the Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You have the truth in light, in bread, and communion with him in prayer. And you have been invited into his presence and been made priests of God. Well, I got to this last point, so let's see if I can finish, because there's one more door. And Jesus is not only the way, he is not only the truth, but he's also the life. If you're in Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 3, it talks about it, and that's going to talk about the second curtain, because they're not counting the gate that I count as number one. 
But this is the final room. Behind the second curtain, verse 3 of Hebrews 9, was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which had a golden urn uh, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of covenant. Above it were cherubims of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and then all of these things I cannot speak, we cannot speak in detail. Well, they knew the details. And, and again, here's this, he, he ties the altar of incense into the most holy place, as I mentioned, because he's looking at a specific day, the day of atonement, when the priests would have brought it in. It, it doesn't reside in there, it resides in the first section, but it's brought into the second section. This room, this most holy place, and why it's described that way, pictures the very presence of God on his throne. And there's really only one piece of fixed furniture in there. It is called the Ark of the Covenant. It's what they actually built first, a wooden box overlaid with gold, and on it is a seat. The seat's called a mercy seat. On either side are adorned with angelic figurines that look like angels. It represents the throne room of God. You remember from Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a vision of what that looks like, and this is symbolic of it as well. God is a spirit, and yet here, represented in these figures, Isaiah sees it, he gets a vision, and his response is, and notice the connection, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And all the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was, notice, filled with smoke. Incense into the room. Get it? It's a connection. That's where it's coming from midst of his, a people of unclean lips. For my, my, he says, woe is me, is his response when he sees this. He recognizes that, that he would otherwise be a dead man. He says, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim then flew to me, having his hand a burning coal taken from the tongs of the altar and he touched my mouth and behold he has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for he's now a blessed man he's had his sin atoned for he's been made clean and in doing so he can now stand before almighty God this throne room pictures into the very presence of God, into his perfect holiness. In the tabernacle, the entrance to this most holy place was, was restricted as well. Everybody could come into the courtyard, door number one, only the priests into door number two, but you know, door number three, as I'm enumerating them, the most holy place, just for organization here, it was restricted even further. Are you in your text in Hebrews 9? So that you would know, because 
we need to be reminded we're not Hebrews. Verse 7, But into the second only the high priest, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself in the unintentional sins of his people. But by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet open as long as the first one's still standing. This is impactful to these people who are wanting to go back to that. He said, you going back to that? Then, then real communion with God is not actually open because that's only symbolic of the reality in which now it is open. It is open for all that are in Christ to come. This is the most intimate section here with God. Only the high priest could go in in their ritual just to remind us that there's a restriction and, and it, it isn't yet open. But, but now it is. That's his point. Now there is a new and living way. And if you're in chapter 9, this is real close. You can flip over to chapter 10. We'll get there in two or three years, I'm sure. <clears throat> but look there, verse 19 now, it's based on this idea here of see how it's opening up this fellowship and intimacy with God. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, I'm in chapter 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence then to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he had opened us up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And now we have a high, great high priest over the house of God who let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from the evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. You can go all the way in to the very presence of God. In their rituals, all of this was certain restrictions along the way. But through Christ, all of it has been opened in a new way. <coughs> Symbolically. To demonstrate this, perhaps you remember when Christ died on the cross. Find it in Matthew chapter 27. There's a lot of shaking going on. The whole earth shook. All kinds of stuff happened. Significantly, one thing that happened that connects to this very truth I'll read it for you, Matthew 7, 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. It was an earth-shattering event. That final curtain, that final veil, wasn't turned from the bottom up. It was the top down. Christ who came down and he opened up a new and living way. Beloved, you can come to God. You can have fellowship with Him. You can have great communion and see the light of life. You can dwell with Him even in the wilderness journey. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you will grant us a unique connection with Jesus Christ our Lord and through Him and only Him to have true access to you and fellowship now and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen. Beloved, I'll give you a moment to praise God and worship him in your thoughts of this great truth.
If you're outside of Christ, the, the message is still for you to come and come all the way into complete fellowship with God. Take a moment, respond to him in the way he has spoken to you today. Father, I pray that indeed we would all come with great confidence to draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find help in our time of need. I pray this in the only name of the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's all stand and turn to 173, Jesus, the very thought of thee. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. We're dismissed.